Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, June 26th. In today's news, the Trump administration asks the Supreme Court to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act, including coverage for pre-existing conditions. Trump races to open more than two-thirds of the largest swath of U.S. public land to drilling. And protesters in D.C. are now demanding the removal of a statue of Abraham Lincoln. But first, the big idea. Arizona's testing sites are totally overwhelmed. People in Phoenix are baking in their cars for hours, sitting in long lines so that they can get tested because they have the symptoms of the coronavirus. This week, Arizona reported not just a record single-day increase in new cases, with nearly 4,000 new cases almost every single day. But they also reported the use of inpatient beds and ventilators at record levels. Public health experts on the ground are warning that hospitals in Arizona could be stretched so thin that they may have to begin triaging patients by mid-July. Arizona today has more per capita cases of the coronavirus than were recorded at any point by any country in Europe or even by hard-hit Brazil. Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix, is recording as many as 2,000 new cases a day, eclipsing every borough of New York City even on their worst days of March and April. The state has lost control. Arizona has become the new global epicenter of the crisis. And it didn't have to be this way. Physicians, public health experts, advocates, and local officials tell my colleagues Jeremy Duda, Isaac Stanley Becker, and Chelsea Janes, who have been reporting on the ground, that this crisis was not just totally predictable, but avoidable. Local ordinances requiring masks were literally forbidden until Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, finally reversed course last week. It's one of several major blunders by Ducey that have made this crisis so bad. State leaders did not take the necessary precautions. They did not model safe behavior. When forbearance was most required, as the state began to reopen despite continued community transmission, an abrupt and uniform approach without transparent benchmarks or latitude for stricken areas to hold back led large parts of the public to believe the pandemic was over. The state's cases began rising dramatically on about May 25th, 10 days, roughly the incubation period, after Ducey allowed the state's stay-at-home order to expire entirely. Still, even now, resistance to health precautions remains pronounced on the hard right. At an anti-mask rally on Wednesday, a member of the Scottsdale City Council, Republican Guy Phillips, shouted the dying words of George Floyd, I can't breathe, before ripping off his mask. At almost every stage of this state's pandemic response, the interests of big business have taken priority over public health. Ducey is the former CEO of Cold Stone Creamery. He was an active member of the Koch political network before he ran for office. Experts say the seeds of this crisis were planted in early May. President Trump was pushing hard for states to reopen, and he was coming to Arizona to tour a Honeywell plant. The day before the president's visit, Ducey announced plans to accelerate the reopening of his state's economy faster than planned, lifting restrictions on salons and barbershops, allowing restaurants to resume dine-in service. A chart 
displaying the number of new cases at that point showed the state was not anywhere close to meeting the 14-day decline in new cases that was strongly recommended by White House guidelines. But Ducey said, quote, that metric really doesn't tell you much. That evening, the state ended its partnership with the university modeling team in Arizona, whose projections plainly showed a rising caseload in Arizona. Two days later, top health officials, political appointees, acknowledged juking the stats. They changed the way they were counting test results in a way that had the high likelihood of artificially lowering the positivity rate. Ducey was touting at that point the low positivity rate as evidence the state could reopen, even though it wasn't meeting all the other metrics. Here's then what made it worse. Ducey didn't just block local governments from imposing restrictions to protect their own residents. His administration has threatened to cut off state funding in retaliation for such local regulations. Regina Romero, the Democratic mayor of Tucson, said the biggest challenge that she's had has been Governor Ducey tying her hands in the hands of mayors and county health departments across the state. She said she weighed an emergency proclamation mandating masks in mid-March, but her city attorney advised her against it, warning that the city could lose millions of dollars in state funding that they depend on to deliver vital services. That dissuaded her, and it probably, maybe, cost lives. I should say here that Ducey's press office and his political appointees at the health department did not respond to several of our requests for comment. Sadly, what's happening in Arizona is playing out to lesser degrees across the Sun Belt. The situation is as dire today in Florida and Texas as it's been at any time since the start of the pandemic. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, paused his state's reopening yesterday, ordering hospitals in four large counties to postpone elective surgeries. Some epidemiologists are also worried about what they've taken to calling a reverse summer effect. Remember how we thought or hoped that warm weather would kill off the virus? Well, instead, what's happening is it's driving residents into indoor spaces that are cooler with AC, but that have recycled air. They're much more likely to catch the coronavirus in those conditions. Early in the outbreak, Trump told governors they were on their own for testing, medical supplies, and stay-at-home orders. Now, in this new phase of soaring cases amid reopenings, the effects of this decentralized decision-making are particularly noticeable and subject to politics, with some states making plainly arbitrary decisions. Yesterday, America had more than 39,000 new cases, its highest ever single-day count. In addition to Phoenix, the counties that are home to cities like Dallas and Tampa also reported record high averages on at least 15 straight days in June. Several other states, in addition to Arizona, including Arkansas, both Carolinas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah, have recently reported new highs in the number of hospitalized coronavirus patients. And several Republican governors are also being accused by public health experts of manipulating data to make things look better than they really are. In Georgia, one of the first states to lift restrictions, officials reporting to Governor Brian Kemp published a chart claiming to show declining cases over time. However, it turned out <laughs> the data were arranged in descending order, not chronologically, so that it looked like there was a decline when there was not. This isn't funny because more than 122,000 of our fellow Americans have now succumbed to the contagion. The head of the CDC said yesterday 
that coronavirus infections may be 10 times higher than the 2.4 million cases reported. CDC Director Bob Redfield's estimate, which is based on antibody testing that the feds are doing, indicates that at least 24 million Americans have been infected so far. Redfield said he believes about 5 to 8% of the U.S. population has had the infection. This is significant because that means that 92 to 95% of us remain susceptible to coronavirus infections. Experts say that this is the critical data point showing that the pandemic remains in its early stages and people need to continue to do everything they can to try to limit the viral spread. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end what has been another hellish week in America. Number one, the Trump administration filed a brief late last night with the Supreme Court that argued, this is a direct quote, the entire ACA must fall. The administration's argument comes as hundreds of thousands of Americans have turned to the government program for health care after they've lost their jobs because of the contagion. Dismantling the ACA would leave more than 23 million Americans without health care. The administration's brief was filed in support of a challenge to the law by a coalition of Republican attorneys general. The filing came the same day, the same day that a government report showed nearly half a million Americans turned to the ACA for care in April and May amid the economic devastation wrought by COVID-19. According to the report from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, 487,000 Americans took advantage of the special enrollment period on healthcare.gov after losing their health insurance because they were among the millions of Americans who lost their jobs. The numbers mark a 46% increase from enrollments in April and May 2019. Joe Biden said during a campaign stop in Pennsylvania yesterday that axing the health care law as the nation is still reeling from the pandemic would amount to a double whammy for COVID-19 survivors. He worried that insurers would view COVID-19 as a pre-existing condition and without the ACA would be able to deny coverage for survivors. Oral arguments are scheduled for the next term at the Supreme Court, but it's unclear if they'll happen before the election and a decision in the case may not come until 2021. Trump has said publicly that he wants to protect health coverage for Americans with pre-existing conditions, and a White House spokesman reiterated that in a statement sent to us overnight. But the administration has never presented any plan showing how it would accomplish that. And the brief from the Justice Department literally takes very explicitly the opposite position. In this new brief, Solicitor General Noel Francisco argues that provisions protecting Americans with pre-existing conditions or high-risk medical histories are, quote, inseverable from the individual mandate, which was struck down by Republicans in their tax cut bill of 2017, and therefore everything needs to be taken away. Even many in Trump's own high command, including Attorney General Bill Barr, have privately urged a less aggressive posture against the ACA, fearing that advocating for its total elimination will backfire mightily against Republicans at the polls in November, especially down-ballot Republicans. But Trump has insisted on trying to destroy the system, root and branch. Number two. The Trump administration also issued a proposal yesterday to remove wildlife protections for attractive land in Alaska that have been in place for more than four decades. Indeed, 
Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all enlarged the protected areas originally created by Gerald Ford. But Trump appointees at the Bureau of Land Management are pushing before the election to allow fossil fuel extraction in 82% of what's called the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska on the state's north slope. It's one of the most beautiful areas in the world. Juliet Eilperin and Steve Mufson, who won a Pulitzer Prize for writing about how climate change is impacting this area last year, explain that while this area is less famous than the nearby Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, it is one of the most ecologically valuable tracts of federal property, providing a critical refuge for polar bears, as well as tens of thousands of migrating caribou and waterfowl. The reserve, about the size of the state of Indiana, is also one of the most promising onshore oil prospects in the country. A recent analysis by the U.S. Geological Survey offered a mean estimate of 8.7 billion barrels in undiscovered oil and 25 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. The BLM posted notice of its final environmental impact statement on Thursday and is expected to issue the final record of decision within 30 days. Environmentalists and some Alaskan natives who've lived on the North Slope for millennia and depend on its game for substance are likely to challenge the decision in court once it's finalized. Number three, the epicenter of the protests in D.C. right now, which have been going on for about a month, is Capitol Hill, but not the Capitol. Lincoln Park, it's a few blocks away from the Capitol. Protesters there are demanding the removal of a statue of Abraham Lincoln that shows him standing over a kneeling African-American who is unshackled as the martyred president holds a copy of his Emancipation Proclamation. The statue was erected 11 years after Lincoln was assassinated in the days after he won the Civil War. Frederick Douglass spoke at that event to unveil the statue. It's one of his most famous speeches. Critics say the memorial is demeaning in its depiction of African-Americans by suggesting that they were not active contributors to the cause of their own freedom. These critics had planned to try to pull down the statue last night, but federal officers, including U.S. Marshals and the National Guard, as well as D.C. police, swarmed the area and erected barriers to protect the Lincoln statue. They continue to be there on high alert. A massive protest is planned again for tonight at this park. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, is pleading with residents not to tear down a statue of Lincoln of all people without having a civil debate. She said, quote, we should not have a mob decide they want to pull it down. Meanwhile, the U.S. Park Police and the FBI are searching aggressively for the protesters who tried to topple the Andrew Jackson statue outside the White House earlier this week. Last night, the FBI put out photos of 15 individuals on or near the bronze statue and called for members of the community to contact the department's criminal investigations unit if they know who they are. Trump says he's serious about putting these people and anyone who defaces a federal statue behind bars for up to 10 years of hard time. Tensions continue to run high here in the nation's capital. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, June 26th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you 
on monday